Um, I had a thought in and amongst all that, but it's gone. Uh, why am I so thoughtless right now? Um, hmm. It's okay. It's all right. to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life in set-apart ministry. Each week, we sit down to talk about our experiences and challenges as pastors doing small-town ministry during uncertain times. Join us as we try to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. Ethan, how was your week this week? Oh, you know, my week was okay. I, uh, did a lot of my kind of normal stuff, my my typical pastor just trying to get things done kind of stuff. Um, we've been in the midst here at the church in trying to uh, explore if the search for peace is going to go on this year or not. Would Listeners you? to the podcast know all about a search for peace. <laughs> Um, Search for Peace is our Christmas pageant here at the church that I serve. And there's a lot of different stuff going on with that. And so one of the big things I, I did this week was I, uh, <laughs> I, I attended a meeting of different leaders and, and different folks at the church um, to see if we were going to put a Search for Peace on this year. And, um, you know, it's, it's, we're going to try. Church is going to try to make it happen. I, uh, don't know if it's going to happen, but we're going to try. We're going to see what happens. But it was, it, this is actually the second of two meetings that we've had. The first meeting about it was very mean. <laughs> mm. Um, just, just the folks that were there, uh, one person in particular just was really mad at mad at me. You know, they're mad at me for what they interpret as my, my kind of shutting everything down for two years. When really, it's it's what they're really just mad about. Well, I think they're they're mad about two things. One, I think they're mad that the pageant just doesn't have any vitality anymore. You know, it's it's just not that important. It, it just doesn't it just doesn't do what it what it claims to do, right? Which is to, um, I don't know, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ or transform lives or, or whatever. So I think that this person is angry about that. And I think this person is angry that I'm not fighting for, for this. You know, I, I didn't come in and, and, um, be like, well, we have to keep this going. You know, I, I came in and was like, yeah, sounds like it's time, it's, it's time is done. It's time, it's, it's time to shut it down. And so this person has taken matters into their own hands and is getting it going. <laughs> so the first meeting was really mean. And then this meeting that I attended this week was not as mean, but it's also because this person is getting what they want. So. Right. Uh, hmm. fun times, fun yeah. times all around. <laughs> and so I did have a good conversation afterwards. There's a, a, a leader at the church who's a, a kind of a young adult, one of the couple of young adults we have. She was there and at the meeting. And at the end of the meeting, she came to the house to chat with me about it. And we're both sort of in agreement that this is all really unhealthy and <laughs> this isn't a good idea because <laughs> it's not, it's not a good idea, but I've, I've kind of decided to eh, 
let it happen, you know? Yeah. And uh, not really fight fight a lot with it. Yeah, there are some things that, like, there are some fights that just aren't worth having. And I think that you have had this fight for long enough that it is now no longer worth it for you to put your energy into it. I think you will. I, that is one of the biggest struggles for me is knowing what is a fight worth having because as like a perfectionist everything's a fight worth having uh but you can't have all of them otherwise you'd go nuts so yeah that's a that's one of those discernment things that yes. older pastors like to talk about or something yeah. <laughs> or whatever they call it no i i, I think you're right and, and like, I think that, um, you know, it's just not going to work. So, so I think that's the other reason why I, why I'm sort of kind of washing my hands of it and allowing it to happen. Um, you know, I'll, I'll do other things. We'll, I'll put my energy into other things with other people. And, um, yeah, I mean, the, I I could rant about it again, but I I don't really want to. I mm. I I think that it's uh, sort of particularly these last two meetings. It's sort of demonstrably true that there's just not enough energy behind it. That everybody's sort of operating from a place of anxiety and desperation, mm. and um. You know, it's just not as important as as the folks that are trying to put it on claim it is. Um, and uh, it's just going to be one of those things. I will say this. One of the highlights of the meeting was um, there, there's a handful of, of conflicts with with what the dates that have been picked for the pageant. Typically, the pageant is the first weekend of December. That's how it's been for 58 years. And this year, um, the the band of the high school is going on a trip to Florida during that weekend. And so, a, a, a number of folks that would that that are that are need to be in a search for peace in order for this to happen won't be present. Mm. And so, the idea. Was that we switch it around for the for the big cut for the big comeback tour where we say okay uh, we won't do it that weekend and say so we'll do it another weekend and we will um, uh, 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 make it be uh, Saturday and Sunday instead of uh, Friday Saturday and then a matinee on Sunday and so it's four performances two on Saturday and two on Sunday. Two, two matinees and two evening performances. And somebody said at this meeting yesterday, somebody said, well, there's a number of college students that, that we're hoping will come back and participate in it. And, uh, and, and everybody's like, oh yeah, if they don't come back and participate in it, I don't know what we'll do. You know, they need to be there. And, uh, they're like, well, you know, a Sunday evening show means that many of these college students are going to be needing to be dr- drive back to college to make a morning class mm-hmm. on Monday, like pretty darn late. And that that's quite a bit. That's one of the reasons why we don't have Sunday shows. And uh, one by one, everybody's like, well, if they care about Jesus in our church, they'll make that sacrifice. <laughs> uh. <laughs> and I, you know, I just sit there and laugh and laugh in my head. Yeah. And try not to freak out. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. We don't really care about, you know, these these are people that don't don't really care about young people. L- like always, right? You know, isn't that isn't that just sort of the dirty secret that that we joke about and we kind of know but we still sort of joke about, but then like Something like this happens, and then we go, yeah, this isn't really a joke. You know, yeah. the, the church doesn't actually care about young people at all. They care about what young people can do for the church. Yes, that is and, exactly uh, it, yeah. Right. And so <sighs> this would be a great example of that. Uh, 
what if we just didn't have an evening one on Sunday? Well, then that's only three performances, and the search for peace needs four. Why does it need four? <laughs> because it's the big comeback tour. Because this is really important, Joe. This is this is extremely important. Ugh. You know, on the the episode where we talked about um, like our what we would like for a church to be doing, like our our vision of our ideal churches and how they would be involved in the community and supporting businesses and 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 helping people, but just really being a vital part of a community. Uh, Ian was talking to a friend of his and she was like, you know, everything they're describing is, is what the black church has been doing since forever. And I like, it just really strikes me as you're talking about this, that this church has never had a mindset of we need to serve the community. They have always had a mindset of the community needs to adapt to us and the things that we want to do. And and it just it just shows so strongly like this is just such a great case study for how something uh, appeared vital in the past. And, and maybe it did because it seems like it built community in a certain way. Uh, but mm-hmm. the, the church hasn't realized that the world has moved on from that. And that method of building community is no longer valid. It's no longer functional if it ever was. Sure. Now, I thank you for that, Joe. I think that your insight is absolutely correct about the context that I'm serving. I think I do want to say this. Um, the folks who have the most anxiety surrounding the pageant and, and the folks who are present at these meetings, these are folks who um, are not really connected to the life of our church in any meaningful way right now. Mm-hmm. W- what I mean is some of them are community people, people from the community who are connected to other churches or doing other things. Some of that, that that's true. And, and there's a, a whole host of questions um, that I have that I've been raising for a few years regarding the increasingly more community-oriented aspect of this pageant and how it's less and less a function of the church, which is fine, and and more and more something that the community is doing and not really something that that, that is coming from the congregation, uh, which is, once again, totally fine. Um, but, but the folks that are connected to our church that are attending these meetings that have the most anxiety over it, these are folks who um, have decided not to come to the party. Hmm. You know, who have decided not to participate fully in the new things we're doing and in the the more vital ministry and movements that are happening in our congregation. Um, these are people whom I haven't seen, you know, more than six Sundays a year hmm. since uh, since we stopped doing a search for peace in 2018. And and so. And to me, I think that illustrates a lot of things, but I think it, it just it just speaks really, really profoundly to just how to a few things to a how unhealthy this is mm-hmm. and b, but also how how much so much of the congregation has moved on. Right. You know what I mean? Um, because there are tons of older established leaders of the church. Who are not attending these pageant meetings, first of all, uh, who who might have a lot of nostalgia for the pageant and who would probably help and participate in it, but who are not spending their time and energy to make it happen, mm-hmm. um, and who have gotten on board in other in other areas. And uh, it was it was interesting. I at, at this meeting, you know, I found myself kind of looking around and being like, well, I haven't seen you folks in months. Hmm. In months. And yet, you know, we're, we're sort of pretending during this time, this meeting, like I'm looking at pillars of the church and, and they are here to 
continue the venerable tradition of this grand ministry of the church, a ministry that hasn't existed in two years. Right. And these are folks who haven't done anything else. It makes um, me think of and the... so go, go for it. I'm sorry. Uh, it makes me think of the parable of the wedding banquet where like mm. the, the bridegroom invites all of the guests who, who were expected to come and they all like turn them down kind of one by one and are unkind to the messengers. And the bridegroom is like, fuck it. Like anybody else can come just like, make sure you have on the right clothes for this type of celebration. Like, the church is moving on. The like the the feast is a, a different place, and everybody's invited. In fact, these people are the first people to be invited to what the church is doing, and they decide instead that they won't, and so the church will invite other people. Right. Um. And so, for some of the my the folks who listen to our podcast that are connected to my, the ministry I'm doing and, and stuff of the church. I want to make a couple of things clear. I think that there is a way and a scenario for the church to participate and and put on some version of this pageant. I do. I I, I admit that. I think that um, what is happening right now is is that's just not that's just not what's happening. You know, like this is a, a, a resuscitation of the dead, not not a resurrection. And and so there is a sense in which um, the the pageant is not serving its purpose. You know, if the purpose of the pageant is to bring a glory to God, whatever that might mean, but to bring glory to God, um, then you would imagine that that's that's what these folks would be focusing on. Um, or maybe asking what God thinks. Right. Maybe praying over it. Right. And, and that's just not, that's just not, you know, that's, that's just not. Instead, we're just kind of, we're just kind of doing it. And so, um, yeah, yeah. I'm really excited about other ministries that we're doing. It I'm really excited about the more vital ways in which the church is, uh, part of our community and is, and is preaching the gospel and is confessing Christ and is doing all that really great stuff. And so this, I kind of see this as a, well, if this is the rent I have to pay. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. In, in order to, um, you know, kind of, kind of do this stuff, then, then fine. There, there's really no scenario in which this lasts more than two more years. Well, you say, and that. they know that. You know, I think they, I think that the folks who are doing this have a lot of anxiety over that exact thing. What, what's going to stop it from continuing to exist? Is it manpower? Is it like the cost of putting it on? It doesn't seem like there's a high cost of putting it on. No, uh, it's not really the cost. I think it is. I think it is. I think it's um, what, what's going to. I mean, that, that's what stopped it in 2018 right. was manpower, and um, and and those are the things that are just not being addressed, um, not in any real way. And so what, what we sort of just have is uh, through sheer force of will and spite, it's going on again. Right. <laughs> But but nobody has done the hard work. Nobody has done the hard work of not only praying over it and trying to see if this is something that we should be doing, but nobody has done the hard work of community building and organizing or, or getting folks on board. And and the reason for that is um, I think there's a few reasons. One, I think that, that n- nobody has or, or not enough people have put together – um, that that this is not intrinsically desirable. Mm. Uh, I I think that what I mean by that is is like it's not obvious why it should go on. Right. Know, it's not obvious. Um, the other side of it, I think, is uh, the the leadership that is putting this on 
is still operating from the perspective that it's a great privilege mm. to be able to participate in this high drama. Um, and I, and boy, I just think that's misguided. I think that's misguided for everything that we do. I, I really do. I, I, I'm not trying to make a, a value statement about the pageant, although I can and, and, and have. I'm really just saying that that attitude is really wrong. Like, that's mm-hmm. such a bad attitude with everything that the church does. You know, why should we ask you to help? You should be begging us to let you help. Like, what are right. you talking what are you, what are you saying? You know, the people can do all kinds of other things. Yeah. And so, eventually, like in the next two years, um, you know, when, when we have even less people that are able to put it on, because no, nobody has done extra work to put every, put it all on. We've basically just invited the same older people who only do this to come back in and do it again. Hmm. You know, there's been no work to um, convince 30 and 40 year olds that they should take this on. There's been no work to do that. Um, Part of it is because nobody wants a 30 or 40 year old to take this on. Right, because they'll change it. Well, right. <laughs> and so, that's where this is going. Mm. Well, uh, that's life. That's, that's, the big, that's the big thing that happened to me this week. How was your week? Uh, you know, I really should have, I should write things down so I don't have to sit here and recite my week. As I realize every time as I'm editing this, like, oh, I'm just uh, explaining the things that I do. Um, my week was fine. Oh, Ian was here. Uh, cause it was, oh, Val- right. <laughs> uh, it was Valentine's day and we're gross. So Ian came down to visit. Um, and so I got all of my church work done kind of early, but I have, I still have a ton of people in the hospital. I have people recovering from surgeries. I have people who are on the verge of death. I just like, there's a lot of that kind of pastoral care stuff that needs to happen. And I've been organizing meetings for, um, to kind of help us, uh, envision where we want to go and, and what we want to do as a church, uh, trying to get them like out of, out of survival mode. Um, and so I had done a lot of that stuff early in the week and just kind of knocked out a bunch of stuff. And then when Ian was here, I spent a lot of time with Ian and we co-preached on Sunday uh, which is something that his uh, at his home church, the pastor there and his wife co-preached like one Sunday in Advent. Uh, and I we watched their sermon when I was at visiting him over Christmas. And I was like, this is cheesy. This is sexist in places. Uh, there's so much about this that I don't like. Um, it, but and, but then I was like, but we could do this better. <laughs> So we tried um, and we I preached about Lazarus, uh, preached about how people, different people respond differently to to death, but how we all have to respond to death and um, how even in any type of death, like we should always be expecting Jesus, God to work something better work like work, work a resurrection, right? Work some some new wonder out of this. Um, and talked about how like our role in that is to like help take the grave clothes off of Lazarus. Like that's what the church does. Jesus is the one, God is the one who's doing all of these, um, is doing the wonders is the one with real power. And it's just our place to follow behind and unbind the people that Jesus has given new life to. Um, yeah, it's, that's my like ecclesiology in a sermon. And I got to talk about awe and wonder and stuff. Gave Ian some good people. lines. Yeah, and people really liked it. Um, a bunch of people didn't know how to refer to it. They're like, that dialogue was fascinating. And I'm like, well, it was, it was a sermon. We did it as a sermon. Uh, but yeah, and then I I was very peopled out <laughs> after that. So yes. I had a pretty light Monday. 
Um, but I did go visit somebody who's been in the hospital and then, um, it had a, a meeting yesterday with our missional network and, um, talked about Wesley's three simple rules, the, um, do no harm, do good, stay in love with God. And I like, I think I was supposed to buy like a book on that at some point in time in my ordination seminary journey, but I didn't. But those are like, I feel like, um, how do I want to say this? Um, I feel like they are something that like Cokesbury would put out as a Bible study to give people an out for actually living real discipleship. But I also feel like if you're following the rules in your being, then you are going to grow in discipleship. Sure. So that's the, yeah, that was kind of where I was with that. And then I just, called a bunch of people today. We have a uh, lady in our congregation who had a fire in her house and is now in a hotel until uh, um, the the insurance company is going to clean at her house because she's a little bit of a hoarder. And then she's going to come back without a whole lot of her stuff. Um, and she's already had some dementia setting in. And I hadn't been able to contact her, uh, but I finally got an updated cell phone number for her. So I'm going to go try to visit her tomorrow. And this evening, we're going to take our midweek worship service and communion to a church member's house who has been really struggling. And she's like, well, it's a mess. And I'm like, we don't care. We'll just be there. And I hope that's going to be good for her. That'll be good. Yeah. What do you, how do you feel about the three simple rules? You had some, uh, you seemed like you had some thoughts. (laughs) No, I, I, I like them fine. I think that um, I don't always understand. Sometimes I get really confused with our church's sort of attempt to um, transform Wesley uh, and some of the stuff he says into, like, more complex spirituality than I think it really is. Hmm. Um, so, like, <laughs> oh gosh, what do I what what do I think of them? I think they're right. Like, yeah, yeah. those are the, the three simple rules are great. Like, totally do them. I I'm not exactly sure how I'm gonna how how profound they are. Right. And I not not that they have to be like you know soul shatteringly profound. That's not what I'm suggesting. But I just don't know how like sometimes my bishop will kind of use things like that as, like, the guiding principle behind, like, annual conference or or stuff like that. And I'm just not always sure I get it. Hmm. Like, you know, today we're going to meditate on uh, do no harm. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Great. O- okay, you know, and, and so we meditate on it. And uh, inevitably... Because annual conference has to be centrist, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Inevitably, uh, it becomes a, you know, make sure that you uh, smile a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just really cheapens it. Yeah, yeah. But, but like, if you really wanted to dive into it, then, like, we'd have to, we'd have to really dive into it, you know? We'd have to say, okay, well, if Methodists are supposed to do no harm, then maybe we need to, you know, in, introduce X piece of annual conference legislation right? in order for Methodists to do no harm. And then everybody freaks out. And then, <laughs> and then the bishop, my, my bishop goes, oh, well, this really wasn't what I had in mind. I wanted us to sing together and hold hands. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, of course, of course. And so, like, I guess what I mean is, is that they're so... Um, they can be used and misused so in so many ways that I, I'm not I'm not sure how helpful they are all the time. Yeah, hmm. that's the. I think they're bad. Right. Yeah. It, just that, like, if you're not going to use them to actually make important changes in your life and in how you walk through the world, then like, don't use them. Right. That's the. This is the thing about Christianity is it has such power to be transformational. You know, it has the power to change people's lives, to change communities, honestly, to like 
change the whole world if people were actually to commit to it. But because it's been such an institution and been around for so long that people don't see it as anything that's life changing anymore, unless you were in a really bad place in the first place. You know, the only stories that we get of personal transformation in Christianity these days are like drug addicts and alcoholics, which like praise God for that, that like, I'm glad that those people are finding a way to turn around their lives. But Christianity should be transforming all of us. Like the story of Christ should be transforming all of us. The work of the Holy Spirit within us should be transforming all of us because we can all be better. And we're just not. We're just not doing it. We're doing whatever suburban bullshit we've been taught our whole lives. And I just, it's milk toast, and I hate it. I'm with you. Now, I will say this. There, there are lots of instances in my context and in my life uh, where, where you know, I really see that. And I mean that. Like, I want to affirm that. My uh, my buddy Matt, he he and I just had a a, a new listener to the podcast. How you doing, Matt? He and I just had a, a really great conversation about um, him encountering the transformative work of God and Jesus Christ in the prison where he works. Mm, yeah, you know, and and that's awesome. Like, man, that what a great conversation Matt and I had about that. Like, like that's and 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 here's a cool thing. And I didn't say this to Matt. Um, but, but, you know, I think Matt knows this, like I get to watch the transformation of God and Jesus Christ in Matt, mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, as his friend and as, and as the pastor of the church that he, you know, hangs out at, it's hard for me to call him his pastor, <laughs> <laughs> the pastor of the church he hangs out at. Um, but like, and that's great. Like that's, that's powerful. And I see that in different, in different ways. And so I, I don't want to belittle that. I and I don't think you are, Joe. Right. But um, but you're right. Like there, too often, too often, I think there is a um, an apathy to the kind of transformation kind of side of it. Um, whereas for me, that's like the whole point of it. Like that's the whole point of what we're doing. Exactly. Uh, if, if there's no transformation, if there's no metanoia, as uh, uh, Beverly Mitchell said once mm-hmm. in in a, in a class, and she said it in 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 her profound, you know, wise, you know, presence, like there must be full metanoia. And I was like, oh yeah, you're right, <laughs> you're right, Matt. You know, a, a, a total transformation. That's just what, listeners, that's what that Greek word means. A, a, a 180 degree, degree turn. You know, a, a, a total transformation and, 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 and change in the heart and in the life and, and all of that. Yeah. Um, and that's important. Like, that's what it's all about. That's, that's totally what it's all about. Um, and I think, so as a pastor, and Joe, I think you're saying this too, I think it, it becomes, I think that the most, that the time when it is the most soul-sucking and soul-crushing is when we don't see any evidence of that. Yes. That's what I would say. That's what, that's when I get the most, like, down and out is when I, is when I'm just like, man, there's nothing. There's no transformation. There's no transformation. I am merely, a uh you know the 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 custodian of a museum you know right yeah <laughs> that's all i cuz that transformation happens when the spirit's moving and that's how you know that something's vital is like the spirit is here and you can see it and you can feel it mm-hmm. um yeah and maybe like and maybe part of my frustration with that is that um I feel like in the denomination right now, because we're so focused on this fight and so focused on the logistics of what comes next, that they're like the ability of God to transform anything through the United Methodist Church right now is severely uh, limited by what we're doing and by like the power of Satan among us. Sure. And uh, it just drives me nuts. Because, yeah, yeah. Uh, burn it to the ground. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry I've done this to you. I'm sure no, no, I no. haven't. But... <laughs> I 
mean, Ian talks a lot about how we need to dismantle the local church, and I disagree strongly. Um, but he wants to dismantle it in order to rebuild it differently, and that's fine. Uh, and he frequently says, you know, if it's an act of worship, you can burn your church down. And I was like, I don't know that that counts for insurance purposes. But I, I, I actually, I totally disagree with Ian on that. I, I don't think the local church is the problem at all. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I mean, I think it can be, right? Like, I think local churches can uh, really get lost, right? Lost in the, the labyrinth of their own, you know, petty desires and all kinds of bad stuff. But like, boy, I, I think that's, I think that's the only place that, that transformation consistently happens. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know? doesn't mean it's perfect like sure i there's a ton of things that need to change in certain certain instances absolutely but yeah i don't don't know about that i uh (laughs) no offense ian the last time that i i saw i saw you like i literally saw you you were uh screaming in st louis while other people were you know in in the non-local church setting were dancing around the graves of you know inclusivity in the church so like right. I, <laughs> I don't know that doesn't happen at the local church at least not right now <laughs> mm-hmm. you know i wonder if um if like the third of the simple rules might be a part of of what we're struggling with in the church is that uh, we don't know what it means to love god and Ooh, what mm. that looks like. Because I, yeah. I was thinking about that as we've gone through the roles. I'm like, I know how to do no harm. I know how to reduce harm in a lot of ways. Uh, I know how to do good. That's like, those are things that I don't really need the church for, right? I mean, like the church is, has shaped my understanding of what harm is and what good is and all this kind of stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't know. I don't know how you bring God into all that. I don't know how you love God. I don't know what that looks like. Sure, sure. Um, you know, that's, this reminds me, uh, have you heard of the guy, of the, of the author, David Dark? No. David Dark is a, um, he, he's a a Christian. He writes, he writes about Christianity and politics and stuff. He's, I don't think, I don't think he'd consider himself a theologian, Mm -hmm. but uh, I don't know that for sure. I, I haven't, the, a couple of his books are on a list that I'd like to read at some point. But he uh, has a very active Twitter presence, and um, uh, he will he'll retweet um, you know stories from the Trump administration or evangelicals or or you know lots of different really horrific things. And and the the comment he always makes is there are lots of ways to hate God. Ooh. <laughs> Whenever he retweets them. <laughs> Ah, oh man, I I like that. Um, oh goodness, because but so here's here is my problem with it is that I know how to I understand hate as an emotion directed toward other people. I understand love as an emotion directed toward other people. I don't understand hate and love as an emotion directed toward God. I understand how our actions show whether we love God or not, but I don't like, I don't know what the substance of loving God is. Yeah. Yeah. I I know what you mean. So like, um, well, I I might, I think I might know what you mean. So like, uh, loving God, how does one love God in a comparable way that one loves, uh, uh, a spouse or a friend or stuff like that? Is that what you're kind of saying? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, there was a time maybe where I thought that uh, God, maybe I might have thought this, that God was a, sort of a, a, a very large person <laughs> that, <laughs> right. that, that you can kind of relate to the way other persons relate to them, you know, relate to each other. Um, but I don't think that's true anymore. I think that um, maybe loving God 
maybe the way I might think of it is um, uh, on one hand, there's sort of that ethical dimension, right? So like David Dark's whole thing is more of an ethical thing, right? Right. You know, the, the way we, the, the way we love the least of these or treat the least of these is the way we, we are oriented towards Jesus Christ and therefore God, you know? Right. So, and that's deeply scriptural and, and it's just, it's just true, right. <laughs> you know? Um, but David Dark, D- David Dark is not necessarily talking about, um, uh, loving and hating God in the way we might love and hate a person. Mm-hmm. He's speaking provocatively and ethically. You know, <laughs> it's funny. I, I, uh, th- this might, this might be something. This might be something. I'm reading Jonathan Edwards. Ooh. Yeah. He's, uh, Jonathan Edwards, for those who don't know, is a, a Puritan, uh, uh, North American theologian. He's in some circles considered to be North, uh, North America's first theologian. Because he's he's sort of you know he's not really a Brit he's he's kind of just he's kind of just there you know what and, a and colonial he, statement to make yeah North America's first Christian white theologian there thanks we <laughs> Jesus we're not in Wesley right now you don't get extra points for saying things like that I don't think that I'm getting points for saying things like that I'm correcting a common problem uh-huh. that we have. This, uh, is, I know. this is my way of doing no harm is by right. recognizing colonialism and just naming it and getting us to be better because colonialism does harm. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. I know. I agree. I agree. Do you? I do. I do. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Sorry. Shut up. So why, man, pre-1968, that's where we need to go. No more of these lady pastors. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> you know, I don't think that. Jesus, I don't think that. Anyway. So Jonathan uh, Edwards, Sinners in the Jonathan Hands of Edwards. the Angry God. Yep, Sinners in the Hand of the Angry God. Right, that's that's sort of his famous, like, sermon. So, like, I didn't really know this about Jonathan Edwards. I just sort of thought he was just like a preacher, Right. But he's he's like a he's like writes like philosophy and he writes like theological treaties and stuff like that. Didn't know that. But apparently he's got like a like a pretty substantial work on beauty Ooh. as like like in like aesthetics and stuff. And one of the things that he says is uh, um, and I could be I, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he says um, really the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that a Christian sees that God is beautiful mm. and and uh, you know he kind of reflects on like demons right and he's like or, or the devil you know he's like the devil most certainly understands the metaphysics of God better than we do <laughs> right but uh, perhaps the devil fails to see that God is beautiful mm. and so and so does not love God right and maybe 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 uh, loving God um, as God, like not not just sort of the loving and hating God that David Dark is working with as like an ethical thing, but maybe loving God as God has something to do with beauty, right? Like has something to do with seeing that God is beautiful, that mm-hmm. that the crucified carpenter is beautiful, and that that this is and and like re- not just pretty, not just pleasant, but like really being caught up in beauty. You know what I mean? Mm. I think yeah. that like I think I think if I was answering that question, I think I'm I would probably say something like that. I th- I like that a lot. Um cuz I a part of part of my growing as a human being uh, is realizing that uh the ways that I was shown love as a child were really um, service oriented ways just like my parents believe that their goal was to provide for us kids and give us opportunities and um, let us figure out a lot of stuff on our own so we would be like self-sufficient beings but there wasn't a lot of like 
we aren't a very affectionate family and all that kind of stuff. And so the kind of like warm, fuzzy feeling of love was not something that I, that my family valued. And so oh, like, but over the course of my life, I've interacted with a lot of people who that was their, their primary way of, um, of expressing what love means to them. And so, um, I was always very confused by what it meant to love God, because to me, love is service. And so by loving, by, by serving the church, I am therefore loving God. But I do know, like, I know that, like, standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, like, you, it's hard to tear yourself away from that view, because there is something enormous and, and wonderful and beautiful about it. Um, and I know that, I can point to beautiful things that have just in, in being near them have restored my soul. And I know how to, um, how to see situations and, and interactions between people that are beautiful. I mean, I, my SPRC chair is the one who recommended that we do, um, at least communion at this church member's house. And like, that is a beautiful thing for her to have thought of. I would never mm -hmm. have thought of it because, uh, the practicality of doing that and, and the need to impose on people to make that happen is something that's standing in between me and, and letting something beautiful happen. Um, and I think that, I think that we can tie beauty and goodness together fairly oh, well. And we know that like God is good. like goodness comes from God. Um, and so I think to, to love God maybe is to, love goodness wherever it appears and love beauty wherever it appears and know that there is a source of that and to kind of seek after that source and seek to, um, I don't, to live into, to live in ways that increase goodness and increase beauty and to be in line with the source of all goodness and beauty. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That sounds right. I mean, that sounds very like Christian mystic, um, church fathers kind of yes yeah yeah no I, and it certainly sounds right and i i agree with it but i i think that maybe you know i'm this is a really good this is actually a, a, i mean i should say it's actually a good question you always ask me questions <laughs> but uh but like i i'm i'm personally a little surprised that my brain is really really pondering this right now because you know i i love the church fathers i I know everything you just said. I say a lot whenever I teach, you know, folks at the church about what Christians think and, and stuff like that. But I'm really thinking, you know, just I, I'm just thinking a lot about, you know, how 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 do I um, devote and love God, you know, and and if there is if if this sort of beauty component is true, then then there's something, um, which I think it is, then uh, there's something, yes, emotive about that, but, but there's something orienting about that, right? Mm. There's something that um, fills, would, would fill me. I mean, be, so like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen where I've been, where I've been overcome by beauty, um, was the day Adrea was born. Mm, you know yeah. that, like, like, but, but I'm not just saying that. Like, like I, I encountered the beautiful. You know, kind of in this, in this space where, where a uh, steaming, beet red, alien baby, <laughs> <laughs> you know, is is screaming at me on a on a little table. That's what Adrea looked like. And, and I, you know, I'm overcome. I'm overcome by the, the intense beauty, you know, of, of this event. Um, and, and, and it's different, you know, it's not, it, Adrea, it's different than pretty, right? Adrea is mm -hmm. not, you know, Adrea is beautiful. We tell Adrea, Adrea that she's beautiful all the time, but it wasn't like, the little baby was pretty like the Mona Lisa or pretty like a flower, you know, mm -hmm. hmm. yeah, there's, there's something, um, 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 <laughs> ontological, but there's something prior, right? There's something, yeah. um, uh, before that, that is, uh, that, that is the beautiful, that, that kind of makes it happen. And so like, 
perhaps being devoted to God or, or loving God, devotion to God with this in mind is to kind of have that um, encounter with that, like you're saying, that source, but to have that really not, not just rooted in what I'm doing, but kind of rooted in, you know, the event of, of being a person, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that to me means that, um, the, the goal of discipleship is to see, um, to have the mind of Christ and therefore to see everywhere that, that God is and that God is working. So everywhere that there is beauty and everywhere that there is goodness. And so we, we endeavor to do that with other people. We endeavor to do that with with nature and the world around us. We endeavor to to do that in our work. Um, what I was really thinking about as you were telling that story about Adrea is that, um, like, I don't right now think of my body as beautiful, uh, not because I have, like, a malformed image of myself, but because, like, I have not treated my body particularly well over the past couple of months. I'm just carrying too much weight on my body and I'm not feeding it the things that it needs and I'm not exercising it the way that it should, that I should. Um, And that, like, that doesn't take away my worth as a person and that doesn't take away, like, how my partner feels about my physical features or anything like that. But Mm -hmm. that my body could be more beautiful if it was functioning better. Well, I don't, and I don't want to, like... I don't want to say that sickness makes or or a lifelong disability makes somebody less beautiful. But I think there are beautiful ways that you can exist in sickness and in dif- and being differently abled. But for myself, if I'm going to have the goal of having my body be beautiful, it needs to be um, kind of the way that God, God would want it to be intended it for it to be originally um, so that it can serve me well and that I can care for it. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to like think helpfully about my weight. And I feel like there's something in there, but no, I think there is Uh, maybe, maybe the caring for it is really the key. Right. Right. Like, you know, part of, part of, um, Oh man, I don't know. Uh, uh, so like ontologically, one of the things that I affirm is that beauty is a transcendental. And, and what I mean by that, you and I have are, are already talking about it like this in this ep- in this episode. All I mean by that is that like beauty is one of those prior things, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's part of our encounter with um, a being itself. You know, beauty, goodness, and truth are transcendentals. They they are inherently desirable in and of themselves. And, and we discover that they sort of overlap on each other. Something can be a truth can be good and beautiful, <laughs> yeah. you know, and and when we encounter goodness, a good act, it is we can also experience it as a beautiful act and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, there, I say all of that because there's a sense in which I believe this is part of my metaphysic that that something exists, it part takes of beauty already Mm. you know like beauty is prior to it and so and so that a thing is already means that it is beautiful in some form you know in in it it, it is a manifestation of beauty um because it, it 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 is and maybe um, that, you know, the, the kind of the caring piece, like one of the ways in which, uh, uh, our bodies or, or, or anything can partake of beauty more, mm. uh, more fully is, is in the way in which we, uh, we care and, and, and cultivate, right? And so a differently abled person, or, or somebody who experienced chronic sickness, um, they are not, um, it, it's not as though that they, uh, only b- beautiful things are fully healthy, non-sick, no, um, 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 you know, abled things. That, that, that's not really the case. Um, but perhaps, um, caring and cultivation, you know, uh, of that body or of that thing, 
through love, through um, the easing of pain, through the 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 building up, you know, perhaps that is what helps that body or that thing partake of beauty more fully. Yeah. You know, because because it doesn't have anything to do with prettiness, like not really. Mm-hmm. You know, those are two kind very different sort of things. Um, at least in my mind, you know, prettiness might might just be a result of biological evolutionary whatever. You know, right. like like I might find something pretty because I'm genetically predisposed to finding an X Y Z thing pretty, or because I'm socially you know. Uh, uh, oriented towards finding this pretty and not this pretty or, or, or what have you. But beauty is not the same. And perhaps in this kind of model of caring, caring for our bodies or caring for other bodies or, or whatever as being a way to, um, open ourselves and partake more fully of beauty, uh, that, that helps us see, okay, well, maybe, maybe a body that is pretty, you know, in, in some context might not still be being cared for. Mm, and so you see what I'm saying? And so like that body, uh, I'm not saying that body is somehow less beautiful. That's not what I mean. But perhaps that body is not partaking fully of beauty and goodness and, 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 and until that body is cared for. Yeah. And I feel like there is a, um, a really folk understanding of this in in a whole lot of cultures. When you look at um, like look at the story of Beauty and the Beast, right? And that like the the Beast did not recognize the beauty in the old woman, and that's why she cursed him. Um, and, or like I something that I always find uh, really beautiful are um, Things that are are worn but still still do the whatever they are are designed to function for. So um, I don't know. I have the coffee table from my parents' house from when I was a kid, and it's taken some beatings and it's got paint on it, but it's beautiful to me. Um, and and there's a kind of I feel in as people are are reappreciating nature. There was this kind of push toward futurism and away from nature and away from the forest and into cities. And it's kind of a very modern thing. But mm-hmm. there's it feels like there's something very true in this return when people return to nature, when people go for a walk in the woods, when people um, appreciate plants and flowers and wildlife and things like that. Like, I just think there's there is a beauty to that that like. Um, maybe like beauty and simplicity, uh, but I don't know. Like there's, I think that there, there is this kind of understanding uh, like that anybody that you just kind of get as a, as a kid with a lot of these myths and fairy tales and, and just folk wisdom that like something being pretty doesn't mean that it's beautiful. Um, yeah. Hmm. Right. And and I can like, like if um, staying in love with God means looking for beauty and participating in beauty and making things more beautiful, then like now I know how to do that. Right. And and caring for the beauty in other people is a way of serving God and like showing God my love through service. Um, Yeah, I can handle that. And but I feel like there has to be a way to explain that more simply because i i feel like as a kid the only way that i really got the the love part of god was um like just somebody always saying that god loves me like greeting card style or the the thing where the leader puts their arms out like they're on a cross and says jesus loves you this much and like that's not that is nothing like what we've been talking about like i and i think that um when you're thinking about Good Friday, when you're thinking about the crucifixion, I think that you can see like the um, the immensity of it and the sacrifice that's in it and just like the the profoundness of this event uh, and and like the depth of it. And that's why it makes the beauty of the resurrection like all that more apparent to us, I guess. Um, yeah. But that is 
even like even that understanding of it is so different from the kitschy version of it that I feel like I've been sold. Sure, sure. Um, uh, not to quote David Bentley Hart, but uh, <laughs> David Bentley Hart in his book Beauty of the Infinite uh, tells us that that Christ is both nocturnally and diurnally beautiful. Ooh. That 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 Christ's beauty is manifest in both Good Friday and in Easter Sunday, right? Yeah. That both are beautiful, you know, to the Christian. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that that uh, I think that makes sense. I think that I can get behind that. Dostoevsky says that it is beauty that will save the world. Mm. And uh, you know what? I really think he's on to something. <laughs> yeah. Like, like uh, you know, I think that that's true. I, I think that um, this is, if I may, I mean, this is this is one of the reasons why I find bad theology so revolting. Ooh, yeah. Um, because it's just not that beautiful. Like, it's <laughs> it's just it's just not that good, right? Like, it's like, well, it's that bad theology. And and there there are some folks. Uh, I follow a uh, a funny Twitter account that just posts um, clips of independent fundamentalist Baptist preachers preaching. You've mentioned this, yeah. Uh, it's pretty funny, and uh, and and it's a really great example of of kind of what I mean because like for a lot of these folks, um, and and they've said this more than once. Like like it it's not. The truth isn't supposed to make you feel good. Mm. You know, the truth isn't supposed to uh, give you hope. Mm. You know, the truth isn't supposed to make things better. The truth doesn't care about that. You know, it's just this is just the truth. What an empirical mindset. I mean, just the that like the truth is a cold hard fact that the truth is something that we is provable and that we all must submit to i mean that's that's yeah. very much in line with the origins of evangelicalism and post enlightenment times but yeah oh goodness and but i also know that i've heard that right i've heard that like mm-hmm. jesus doesn't care about your feelings and that like jesus just wants you to acknowledge his truth and um well, I think that there is definitely a space for the truth making you uncomfortable. It makes you uncomfortable because you see what is untrue in yourself. Sure. You know, like, like, like with the search for peace. Like the truth is that I, that that is no longer participating in the beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or in in a in a sufficient enough way to throw that much energy at it, right? And they sure. like there that's. That's true, and that truth should make the people who are pushing for it uncomfortable. However, that truth opens up all of these other possibilities of things that we can be doing. Uh, yeah, so I think it, yeah, there, there's, there is an aspect of uh, this is true, and that's going to hurt you a little bit, but like the truth should always be able to be followed up with some type of hope. I mean, that's the whole role of a prophet, right, from Brueggemann, the the idea that they both criticize and energize. Right, right. The truth will set us free, right? And and so, and I think maybe bad theology does that very, you know, shows that that's almost never true. <laughs> <laughs> that, that in when theology is bad, it, it's how does this truth set set people free? Mm-hmm. How does how does this truth uh, um, uh, uh, stun us with its beauty? Yeah. You know, or or um, cultivate goodness like in our hearts? Well, you know, sometimes they don't. That's true. And and that's not correct. Like I'm like, oh no, that's never true. That this is actually a metaphysical thing I'm saying. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The truth is supposed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> And so if, if it doesn't, then maybe it's not really true. Maybe it's not truly true. Um, Emily Towns says that uh, part of what wom- the, the task of womanist theology and womanist ethics is to, um, is to get us past the almost true to, to um, 
get us past the sometimes true and to arrive at the true true. Mm. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Uh, and I think that I'm like, yep, Dr. Towns taking me to school, you know, mm, <laughs> like, like that's all. And, uh, and I think that's correct. Yeah. You know, it's a shame that we're having this conversation and I'm not writing my boom paperwork anymore. <laughs> Like, well, yeah, <laughs> I just need to I, I need to re-listen to it and take notes and, and then go forward with it, because that's a much better. I would have just I, listeners. I stopped doing my boom paperwork because I I had an epiphany that I do not know for sure if I want to be an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church until I know what the United Methodist Church is going to be. Uh, so I stopped writing my paperwork. But I think that like with this in mind, um there are some questions that I think I could answer a lot more robustly yeah. than I would have before. Mm-hmm. I, I think that we're, we're kind of wrapping up here. Um, but uh, I, I, you know, I, I read all the time as you know, Joe, and as listeners have picked up, like that's sort of one of the ways I keep the, uh, uh, <laughs> the, the old, the old body going, <laughs> you know, otherwise I'll, I'll give up. Uh, but, uh, I, next week I'm having a Skype conversation with, uh, uh, a black theologian named Vincent Lloyd hmm. and, uh, he's at Villanova university and, uh, his work is really, really interesting. It, it just, it's very cool, but it's, it's, it's a lot of like political theology and a lot of, uh, he's looks a lot of prisons and, you know, different things. And I'm, I just find myself really, really moved by, um, I've, I mean, I've always been really moved by black theology, but I've just been recently really finding myself extra moved by black theology and womanist theology. It's going to be a fun conversation, but like, this is, this is one of the things that energizes me. Like, this is one of the things that keeps reminding me of, reminding me to, to kind of partake of the beautiful and find the beautiful in things, right? Mm. Is when, uh, is when I'm I'm sort of constantly engaged in all kinds of stuff, you know, like that. And then I can share that and, and teach it and stuff like that. Yeah, I like it. I like it too. Well, should I sign us off? Go for it. All right. Friends, this has been What the Hell is a Pastor? This is Ethan and Joe, and we will see you next time. What was I going to say? Uh, revitalization. No. Uh, transformation. Uh, oh, uh, this. <laughs>